Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. Each episode, we summarize the available evidence, discuss controversial issues, provide practical take-home points with a subject matter expert. I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. Now, today I'm privileged to be joined by a friend of the pod, Andrea Sikora Newsom. Now, Andrea is currently a clinical assistant professor at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy on the Augusta campus. She's an ICU float pharmacist for the Augusta University Medical Center. Andrea graduated in 2013 from the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy and completed both her PGY-1 and PGY-2 specializing in critical care at the University of North Carolina Medical Center. Currently, she is a KL2 scholar through Georgia's Clinical and Translational Science Alliance and is completing her Master's of Clinical Research at Emory University. And she is here lending her time and talents to discuss acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Andrea, I really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, Happy to be here. Very excited about this. Now, working in Augusta, Georgia, and I have to ask, have you been to the Masters? Do you like it? Or is it one of those, like, if you live in New York and it's New Year's Eve, that's the weekend that you try to get out of town? Um, So I have been to the Masters. Um, When I was a student, we uh, got practice round tickets. It was the year that Bubba Watson won for the first time. So as a UGA grad, it was uh, awesome. Um, I will say there is kind of quite a bit of hubbub uh, during the Masters week, but it's also a ton of fun. There's concerts and stuff like that. So I can't complain. Okay. I actually have master's practice round tickets this year. I'm incredibly excited. So offline, you'll have to give some of the insider recommendations for when I'm there because it is, it's going to be a blast. Uh, You know, with the low prices, you can eat every one of the sandwiches and I highly recommend trying them all because they are fantastic. (laughs) The, I might live on a pimento cheese sandwich diet from what I've heard. So I have no, I have no issues with that. I, I like that the locals also recommend that. Absolutely. Now, we are recording this in early December. And when this episode actually gets released, you will be hiking in Patagonia on the W Circuit. So we've shifted from a sports bucket list item to just a life bucket list item. So (laughs) are you going with a group? How are you tackling this hike? And you got to you got to let us know where exactly is Patagonia? So the Patagonia region is uh, in South America. So I'll be specifically in Chile in uh, Torres del Plain National Park. And so, yeah, it's a it's like a 70 mile hike. So there's some days it'll be like 18 miles in a day with a 15 pound pack. But um, I'm going with my childhood buddy. We've been friends since we were nine. So over 20 years, she speaks flawless Spanish. So she's going to be my my guide. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm so looking forward to it. We're going to see some mountains. Okay. So you're, it's almost like you're going to be with a local as well. So that's Correct, what yes. a, what a blast. I mean, you're going yeah. to Patagonia and most of us just simply wear it on our jackets or vests. So I think yes. that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. Now, Andrea, you're a book reader and I certainly try to be a book reader. So <laughs> just from that intro, and I know that doesn't cover everything you do. How are you able to make time to read so much with how, you know, how busy you are? <laughs> Um, you know, my genuine hope is that everyone does something for at least a half an hour that keeps them sane, you know, most days of the week. And I can't say that, you know, I'm perfect in that or anyone can be truly perfect, but I hope that you're spending a little bit of time doing something you love. And so, um, yeah, reading is definitely, definitely one of my things. I will say I'm not much of a TV watcher, so I guess I get some time back because I don't watch a lot of TV. 
But uh, I'm currently reading uh, What If by Randall Monroe. He's the NASA engineer who writes these cute little comics. So today, his thing was that uh, if you are learning something for the first time today that everyone else knows, if you do the math, it means at least 10,000 other people are also learning it for the first time, which I thought was pretty interesting. I'm a big fan of that. That is, yeah. that's great because it just truly changes the perspective. Like a lot of times when you yes. learn something, you think that you're behind the curve, right? Correct. That That everyone's ahead of you. But realistically, you may be beating 9,999 other people. That day, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into talking all things ARDS, yeah. I have something to announce and it, it needs to happen when, when you're on the podcast. Now, ugh. Yikes. Okay, that sounds like bad news. It's actually good news. I, I feel like I, we should do like a, a precursor here. So yes. what we want to announce is that Andrea and I will be co-leading a quarterly book club for all listeners and friends of the Pharmacy to Dose podcast. Now, this won't change anything with the podcast itself, the content, when it's released, all that's going to stay exactly the same. But the mission of this book club is to create a digital platform to discuss books that promote both professional and personal development for the critical care healthcare professional. So we will not be doing any New England Journal, you know, medicine articles or journal clubs. No one's going to have to hear an impact factor in these book clubs, I promise. So it's just meant for books that help expand your development. So there will be a, you know, the plan right now is that there will be a group on Goodreads, which is like a, um, a kind of a website for book lovers to unite. And it's more of like a traditional message board so people can interact without being there exactly in the moment. Um, but then we'll also have kind of Twitter chats for real-time discussion with the hashtag pharmacy to read. Now, we will um, announce the four choices for the first book on the next episode, and then we'll kind of have a Twitter poll or accept submissions via email so, so you, the listener, can help pick this first book that, that we get to read. Andrew, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm extremely excited. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, I'm definitely super hyped about this. I think this is going to be a ton of fun. Um, ironically, uh, UNC, they do a roast at the end of the year of the residents. And so my second year as a critical care resident, uh, one of the things I got roasted on was actually a critical care book club. Um, so this is really coming full circle for me. And I am really, really pumped. So all of the Emory, Emory University where I did my residency, they do a roast as well. And um, they are a little more harsh with their superlatives and things. So on air, I can't repeat any of those. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's, a, that that's a trend elsewhere. And we're, and we're oh, kind of yeah. going full circle here. So um, the idea came for Andrea to help because if you, if you uh, follow her on Twitter at all, you know, you're always posting really good quotes, pictures of or um, like summaries of things that you've read. So I think it was kind of a natural um, pick. So I think this is going to be great. Yes. Definitely. Um, we're still finalizing things. So send send Andrea or I kind of your thoughts. Um, and we yeah. will definitely incorporate that as we as we get moving forward. But we anticipate that this would go live starting in 2020. So that's kind of the, the um, process or timeline that we're thinking right now. So the real reason we're here today. Today, we're talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Now, we're going to get into all of the research and progress that's been made. But Andrew, what's kind of the history of ARDS and why are we talking about it today? Why is it important? 
<laughs> so to me, ARDS is almost a microcosm of all of critical care. It's highly complex. You see it fairly frequently, so relatively common. It's got pretty high mortality. It's also hard to define. It's hard to study. The literature is conflicting. And yet every day as a, as a clinician, you're faced with how to take care of these patients. And so to me, that is why we're talking about it. Um, from a historical perspective, um, I would say that it was Ashbaugh and colleagues that was in the 1967, and they published this 12-patient case series, and they described this rapid development of respiratory distress with acute onset of tachypnea, hypoxia, and a loss of compliance. And uh, interestingly, there's a pretty fun little read you can have about it where they say how it really happened, and they talk about how the two authors were together and they're like, what does this knob do on the new ventilators? And they're really <laughs> discovering PEEP for the first time and how well PEEP works. Um, and it got rejected because this was completely against standard of care to use PEEP. Um, and that's maybe another thing that I love about ARDS is there's actually multiple things, and I'll try to point them out, that we first discover in ARDS as being good. And it turns out that they're a good idea in other areas of critical care. So PEEP will be one of the first of those. Um, and so I'd say maybe in like 1994, the American European Consensus Conference or AECC got together and it kind of created this definition. It talked about severe hypoxemia uh, using the P to F ratio of less than 200. They had bilateral infiltrates on chest x-ray. And then you couldn't have any evidence of cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So it couldn't be because of your heart. So were they playing with those? So they were playing with those knobs on an actual patient. This wasn't like the ventilator came and then they were trying to see what everything did. They did the very man sense, which is rather than look into and try to figure out everything before, we're just going to dive right in and figure it yes. out later. That's what they did. <laughs> yes. And it was, it is, uh, yeah, it was, it's a funny little article of them looking back in like, you know, 30 years, these two, these two people back in the day. So that was really neat. I should also say, you know, in terms of mortality and epidemiology, it's about 10% of all ICU patients have ARDS, about 25% of all mechanically ventilated patients have ARDS. And from there, if you have severe ARDS, about a 50% mortality rate. So it's something you will see, and it's, uh, uh, it's definitely a high severity disease. So It's kind of humbling that you're, you're already talking about people that are extremely sick on the ventilator. Now you're talking about when you get the worst case of this, it's it's 50-50, you know, chance of survival. Yes. That is really important. Um, and why there's so much research and everything that's that's going gone into ARDS, you know, since that that first um, you know, report of it. Now that definition or criteria that you that was created in 1994, um, you know, when that happened and as time progressed, it, you know, there was definitely some criticisms there. So is that still what we use today to help diagnose ARDS? Uh, no, it is It is not. So um, some of the criticisms you talk about are uh, there's a pretty high rate of inter-observer error on reading a chest x-ray. Um, this hypoxia criteria of the uh, PaO2 to FiO2 ratio uh, can be altered by what the ventilator settings are, which includes things like PEEP, but also the FiO2. And the tough part is it's not a linear relationship. So it's if you are using FiO2, you can see different ratios. And they also found it has a pretty low specificity for ARDS. So in 2011, um, they got together and created the, the Berlin criteria. Uh, and so this is the onset within seven days, bilateral opacities consistent with pulmonary edema, uh, P to F ratio, and then you have the stratifications and then on a PEEP of five. And I will say that there is also plenty of editorials and funny commentary on, AR, on the Berlin criteria not being amazing either. <laughs> 
Yeah, let's let's dive into a little bit about that. Like, what are some like limitations or or, or criticisms to the Berlin criteria? Because it was it was last updated in 2011, and at this point, right, basically we're on the the fringes of 2020. That's nine years ago. Lots changed in in critical care. Yes. So. Uh, one of the things you'll hear about is the Kigali modification. And so this has to do with the fact that, you know, we're talking about criteria that are based on having a ventilator. If you're in other parts of the world that are uh, do not have ventilators, how are we diagnosing, diagnosing ARDS? Um, you know, the other part too, is we used to really put a high emphasis on there could be no cardiac source of this pulmonary edema, but it turns out that heart failure patients can also have ARDS. And so how are we evaluating those situations, right? Um, and then probably one of the most interesting papers that came out was that there was a, a report, it was about 700 autopsies that they did of patients with ARDS based on the Berlin criteria. And when they did the autopsies, only about 50% showed what they called diffuse alveolar damage, which we thought was like the pathophysiology of ARDS. So now it turns out that either we don't know the pathophysiology or we don't know the definition. And um, so this... Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, I love Ocean's Eleven. So that is the one movie that I can quote and like talking about. But uh, the Saul is asking Brad Pitt during the, when they're getting ready for the heist and to get, get into this casino. And he goes, I've got a question for you. He says, say we get into the cage and, and through these security doors there and down the elevator, we can't move and past the guards with the guns and into the vault we can't open and without being seen by the cameras. Uh, to me, that perfectly captures what is ARDS. We don't know how to define it. We don't really know why it happens. We don't really know why what works actually works. We don't have great epidemiology because, again, we can't really define it. And a lot of the studies are negative. So it's a, a wonderfully uphill battle, but it's also a ton of fun for that reason, too. And then just like you said, like it, it's once you start looking into it, you realize the things we thought we knew we do not. And so it's yeah. it's almost like, you know, building upon itself for anyone. who, By the way, as an aside, anyone who yeah. hasn't seen Ocean's Eleven, you need to get out there. That that quote is so perfect because I, the, even at the end of it, you think he's done. And then someone like interjects and adds something else. He's like, yes. oh, yeah. And that like it's it's very, very perfect. Yes. Um, so have we been able to, you know, identify any, you know, common causes or risk factors or, you know, things that we can, you know, try to get ahead of for these, you know, for these patients that um, in a disease that has this kind of high mortality? Yeah. So I think probably one of the best studies is the lung safe study. It's about 12,000 patients in a cross-sectional study, I think came out in 2016. And that's where I was citing those, uh, the 10% rate and the 25% of mechanical ventilation, but they also identified, you know, different risk factors and things like that. So generally risk factors, we think of our pneumonia, that's 30 to 50% of the cases. Then you move into non-pulmonary sepsis, aspiration, and trauma. Um, some other specific risk factors are like age, non white race and some genetic variants. But what's fascinating is that like while age we know is a risk factor, it doesn't necessarily confer extra mortality. So, and then you get into, you know, there's a lot of people that get pneumonia, but not everybody gets ARDS. So we know there's a genetic component, but I don't think we have a great feel for that just yet. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the pathophysiology kind of going into, you mentioned genetics and um, that that probably plays a part. And that would make sense because, you know, the pathophysiology of ARDS, it's one of those things to me that is just fascinating because of all of the all of the the changes that happen throughout the time course and how, 
you know, an intervention early might help, but if you do that same intervention late, it might not, it might only not help, but actually hurt. So kind of yes. walk us through the, the kind of typical ARDS time course, you know, um, you know, leaving those outliers out that all of us, I think, um, have seen when we've been in practice. Sure, sure. So yeah, so as you're saying, ARDS can definitely be broken down into different phases. So you kind of have the acute phase or the exudative phase of ARDS. And this is characterized by that diffuse alveolar injury and capillary endothelial injury. And there's one description I loved, and it describes these neutrophils adhering to the pulmonary capillaries and boring these little holes through the basement membrane. And then when you have these little holes in the basement membrane, these large plasma proteins seep through into the interstitial fluid, which then disturbs Starling's equilibrium, and you get this diffuse pulmonary edema, and that can reduce gas exchange and lung compliance. Um, somewhere in the mix, you get neutrophils and T cells that are also migrating into this inflamed lung, and they're also amplifying the damage. At some point, you're going to want to ask me why are this, all these immune cells um, acting different, and uh, I, I don't have a great answer for you. The, the underlying cause for that altered behavior is not well described. So at this point, you know, your alveolar epithelium has two types of cells. The type one cells are the gas exchange surface. They're like these flat little plates and they're what take the brunt of the damage. Uh, and then you have type two cells, which also get damaged as well, but not as much. And they're the ones that produce surfactant and the progenitor cells. And at some point, you'll move into the proliferative phase, which is like the repair process. Uh, it's considered essential for recovery. That's when you get the reabsorption of the fluid. Um, there is a fibrotic phase that people talk about that has been associated with prolonged mechanical ventilations. It's also sometimes called the recovery phase. Uh, and in terms of time course, <sighs> I, you know, I'd say the acute phase, we feel pretty comfortable with, you know, maybe the first seven days. And then after that, you start to see um, the other phases kicking in. So the acute phase, I think, is something that is, you know, um, very evident to see, right? It is the yeah. patient that either comes into the ED that's already needing like 100% oxygen or the person that you're weaning and everything's going great, but then overnight aspirated and then suddenly their FiO2 is up to 90% two hours later yeah. and all those things, right? So thinking about like the pathophysiology, you know, outside of that acute phase, are there any ways for kind of us as pharmacists or the critical care team to kind of know how that patient, if the patient is going through like the, um, through those kind of different inflammatory phases, or is that something that we don't really have a good grasp on right now? I would say that we do not have a, an amazing grasp on that. I think, you know, I think, uh, biomarkers and stuff like that are going to be, are going to be part of that answer. But I, that is one of the tough things is that it's very difficult to one diagnose, uh, but about a 50% lack of recognition, according to one study. And it's very different to prognosticate, to really know, um, you know, where the patient is. So we, I mean, P to F ratio was like probably one of the best things that we have going for us. And as we've already said, there are some limitations to that. So it is a, it sounds like it's a, it's a disease state that's a lot more common than we, than we may think right now. It kind of affects our sickest patients. So when we have these patients that have ARDS, what would you say are our treatment goals? <laughs> um, so 
when you take a holistic approach to ARDS management, I really think you come up with the three classic principles of critical care. And to me, those are the treating the underlying cause. So if they have pneumonia, you would give them antibiotics. You're going to provide supportive therapy, which is going to be like mechanical ventilation, fluid management, stewardship, uh, and then don't harm the patient in the process of the first two. And really for ARDS, it is the bread and butter is the supportive care right now. You know, we do not have a therapy that targets the kind of maladaptive immuno response. You know, we just don't have that at this point. So it's largely supportive, supportive care. Those principles sound so great. It almost feels like there are probably pulmonary critical care, like fellowships that, that make the fellows get that like tattooed on themselves. Right. Because (laughs) that is that I, those three principles, I think you could apply kind of across not only critical care, but almost medicine in a sense of like, that is universal. I love those. I think I'm going to steal that probably, but I'll definitely give you credit. (laughs) Uh, You can definitely, I stole it from somebody else. Uh, One of my uh, main mentors once told me that. Uh, when I was at UNC and I was like, that is beautiful. And I have it in almost every one of my PowerPoints at UGA. The students laugh at me sometimes about that. So I like that. (laughs) I know I, I, I've, I've, I've given a presentation. I I hesitate to say taught because I was a critical care resident teaching it to Emory pharmacy students. I'm I'm not sure who was more nervous to be there that day, but (laughs) I remember you, when you talk about ARDS, like say you have a two hour lecture, you're 90 minutes in and you might not have mentioned a single med yet. Right. And so it's just a very when you're thinking of classic, you know, pharmacy type of lectures, this is one that breaks the mold, which I think is a good thing. You know, I think that sometimes as pharmacists, you know, not only is it very good to understand pathophys and how all these, you know, machines, equipment and things work, but also sometimes the best med is no med at all. And that's I think I think here is that's a really good thing. Now, the 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 hallmark here is supportive care. I think the biggest piece of that supportive care puzzle is mechanical ventilation. So if you wouldn't mind, just I want to make sure everyone is kind of on the same page with kind of our our most important non-pharmacologic ARDS intervention or treatment. So if you wouldn't mind kind of giving us like a three to five minute, I know we have like tweetorials. I think we'll do a podtorial here and just kind of talk just basically, you know, about some of the ventilator modes and maybe what some of that common terminology is so that way, when we when we kind of get into things a little bit later, we'll all understand um, what you're talking about. And then no one's going to have to stop and immediately Google things, or at least not right away. That sounds great. So you know, to get on my soapbox for a second, I think having a basic understanding of mechanical ventilation is really important for, for any pharmacist uh, that works in the unit, because this is actually one of the best ways you can to monitor the drug therapies and to monitor how the patient is doing. So I think if someone once told me they checked their email during uh, when the, when the respiratory therapist was talking, and I was like, oh, please don't do that. That's uh, <laughs> pretty important for uh, this type of patient. So, And a quick aside, I'm just going to interrupt for a second. Yeah. Please nobody be checking email when members of the team are talking as Especially like that just sounds I if, imagine if uh, if we were talking and like you look over and, and, and the nurses, you know, checking out Facebook or something. That's not what you want to see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so mechanical ventilation is a life saving intervention for these patients. Um, and so the trick that we're trying to do is to oxygenate these patients, but to do so without the again, the things that harm a patient about our interventions, going back to our three principles of, of critical care. So we have to be concerned about volume trauma, which is basically volume that's going to be kind of hurting the alveoli barotrauma, which is the pressure, and then oxygen toxicity. 
um, you know, creating those free radicals. So, and to this day, probably one of the most unequivocal trials of showing benefit in ARDS and really in critical care medicine was by ARDSnet, and it's the low tidal volume ventilation study that showed that six cc's per kilo um, times ideal body weight uh, versus a standard. And it had this striking, like almost 10% drop in mortality. They had to end it early because they were so surprised. So again, this is a really important intervention. And I will again, stress that, uh, anyone with a calculator can take the title volume and then divide it by the ideal body weight to just see kind of where your patient is. Um, and it's always good to kind of check in on that because all of yes. us are human and there, there's plenty of times where you think someone is on six cc's per kilo, but unfortunately, because there were eight admissions and things we calculated on actual body weight. So it can kind of just be a way for everyone to kind of double check those types of things. So I, I, that's something that I always do. I always encourage students as well. So I'm glad that that's, uh, that you all, you support that as well. Oh, for sure. Um, so globally, you know, a ventilator mode is a type of respiratory support that's being provided. Um, and if you want a classic attending to the med student question, they'll say, what are the three things that define a mode? And the answer is going to be the trigger, the target, and the cycle. Or if they're a bit more seasoned, they'll say trigger, limit, and cycle. And so what this is referring to is what initiates the breath, that's the trigger, what the goal of the breath is, that's the target, and then what terminates the breath and goes to exhalation, and that's the cycle. And your options are time, pressure, or volume. So it's you've been so long since you've taken a breath, that's the time you have a breath, or you reach a certain volume, then that'll uh, cycle your breath for you. Um, from here, you know, I think the workhorse of many units is probably pressure-regulated volume control, or PRVC, and other classic modes are volume control and pressure control. Um, so what this is referring to is what is actually being controlled or targeted uh, for that mode. So in volume control, you're targeting a very specific tidal volume. That's how big your breath is. Uh, and so if you target that volume, then the pressure is variable. What makes PRBC so interesting is you can use a, a decelerating flow pattern and it makes the pressure be constant, but also allows you to target a specific volume. And so they'll say it's a breath to breath mode because it, it changes every single breath, but within a range. So you get to have this target pressure and target volume. So that's why you'll see it so often. Um, and the volume notable, and the volume yeah. for us, like the tidal volume, like when you take a big breath in, like that is a larger tidal volume, yes. right? Correct. All right. Correct. All right. Yes. Bigger just, breaths. Like, exactly. I like some layman's terms because in an audio <laughs> format, you know, some, some people may be listening like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm hearing all this. So I, I like to just try to break it down as in you or I trying to hold our breaths here. So I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, that's true. And yeah, and to be clear, like when you take a big breath, like what you just did, that could easily be 800, 1,000 cc's. Uh, and it's, so it's pretty interesting to look at when you do six cc's per kilo, make maybe around 400 cc's, how small that actually is, is pretty interesting. Did, did you ever have to, when I, when I was a resident, we like got like hooked up to like a yeah. practice ventilator and you see what actually low tidal volume is. And I'll tell you what, that is not very easy to feel like you're getting good breaths because it is no. significantly smaller than I think what you or I take on a, you know, um, volume on a daily basis or a, a breath basis. Yeah. And that is an incredible experience. If you can ever get hooked up to the ventilator modes and like see the different ones, but yes, that was very eye-opening how small that breath was. Um, you know, fun facts are that the, we'll talk about neuromuscular blockade in a second, but in those studies, they used volume control, that specific mode. Um, and I think that's important that when we're talking about neuromuscular blockade, that we're using the mode that actually went with the study. Um, there are some advanced modes like uh, airway pressure release or APRV ventilation, uh, 
uh, HFOV or high frequency oscillatory ventilation. There's some new fancy things you might hear about like neurally adjusted or proportional mm. assist ventilation. And those are studies, if you go looking, you know, clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see that those are being evaluated too, but beyond the scope for here. Um, so probably the three main things are the FiO2, the PEEP, and the tidal volume. So the fraction of inspired oxygen, uh, 21% is what we're breathing, maybe a little lower in Denver. Um, anything, you know, 40 is a pretty standard number. Anything over 60, you're likely to see oxygen toxicity. Um, tidal volume, again, that's just it's, it's a volume number. It's in milliliters. And it's just how big is the breath when you take a breath in. Uh, PEEP is kind of funny. It's positive end expiratory pressure. So if you think about it, when you breathe out, and you guys breathe out with me, if you want, you can force out a little bit more air and it feels a little weird. That little extra air that you forced out is actually your PEEP. And that's a natural thing. And the best way to think about it is like when you blow up a balloon, you ever blow up a balloon, the first few breaths are so hard. And then you finally get to that kind of magical breath and that's super easy. So your body has figured that out for you. So it provides you that natural peep. So it's easier for your alveoli to blow up. Um, Isn't it funny that when, when talking about peep, I cannot explain it without actually doing the breath example. Cause I'll try to say it and it's like, okay, I, let me just do this. Cause I think it'll be easier to understand. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I love doing that. And students are always like, wow, that's amazing. I never thought of that. <laughs> uh, let's see. I don't know. What else you want want me to talk about? Well, what uh, do you have any favorite, you know, like Michael Cauley is a dual like PharmD respiratory therapist. You know, I, for anyone who who is looking for more information like on ventilators or things, definitely take a look. There are some really good like review articles. There's yes. also a... Mm, I'll post it. I can't remember the name of it offhand, but I think it's called the ventilator book in the advanced ventilator book. I think it's by Dr. William Owens. It's a green book. I can't remember exactly, but there's a lot of good kind of resources um, for those who are kind of looking for more information. Now, quick tangent yes. here because I really can't help myself. So does the ventilator mode that we um, have patients on, should that affect the sedation that we use or our sedation targets? <sighs> Um, so people like to say this and I don't, I don't think that there is a, if you are on X mode, you have to have X, you know, amount of sedation. I have seen a patient on APRV, which is a really interesting mode. It's an inverse ratio. So the whole time I'm talking, I'm exhaling, right? And in this mode, they flip it around. So I spend like only a second exhaling and the whole time inhaling, which is really different. Um, and I and supposedly people don't like this. I have watched someone do a crossword puzzle on APRV. They waved at me. They were doing well. They needed APRV. They were on no sedation doing a crossword. Uh, so I do not think so. And that's the mode. That's the mode that historically people have argued for deep sedation, correct? Yes. Because it's a because it's kind of that strange mode, different to what how we normally our lung physiology. Right. And what's like a neat fact about APRV that they have found is that, you know, you have the lung flow dynamics and I'm not going to pretend that I am really good at physics, but I, there are some interesting papers that basically show that spontaneous ventilation on APRV actually has more recruitment and is better for the lungs than non-spontaneous ventilation. So to paralyze someone or to overly sedate them, you may actually be negating the value of APRV, which is really fascinating. 
Wow, that actually really is. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I couldn't help myself, but I'm glad I couldn't because that was that was extremely interesting. I like that. That's always yes. my thing. I always try not to. I try to keep the same kind of sedation targeting goal regardless, but I, you know, I, I just had to ask. Yes, So I love talking about Benz. <laughs> so if we had to probably rank non-pharmacologic interventions, kind of what we do within critical care, I got to say that my probably favorite is prone positioning. Now, yes. normally patients, right, they're sitting supine in their hospital beds. They're kind of on their, you know, on their backs like we would normally do laying on the couch. Now, prone positioning involves a patient laying kind of on their stomach or abdomen rather than their back. So how does laying on your belly help this, you know, really severe disease? Uh, great question. So it's kind of interesting to think about, but the, the lungs towards your back are actually, they're bigger. Uh, in the back than they are on the front. So when you lay on your back and you kind of get all gravity and all the kind of gunk and edema um, going down, it actually will, you have the most blood flow there, but now you're uh, impeding gas exchange. So prone positioning actually improves what they call VQ mismatch or ventilation perfusion mismatch, uh, which is really interesting. And again, it's non-pharmacologic. Uh, of course, the problem with this is now you have someone on on their belly um, that you're trying to trying to manage. But uh, the the Provisa study is a pretty pretty amazing study by the French. It was a 28 day mortality it was like 50 percent less than in the uh, than in the standard of care group. It's like 16 versus 32.8 percent difference, which is uh, pretty incredible. If you ever, if you ever kind of on rounds or with a preceptor and they're asking you for trials that actually reduced mortality in critical care, start with ARDS because that's about eighty percent of them. And then like everything yeah. kind of because you mentioned the the uh, the the, the perceiva, the prone positioning study, and then the title. Yeah. You know, there's that's where you know a lot of these a lot of these are. So there's yep. a lot of big benefits, but why do you think that it is? I guess, why can it be challenging or why if we're going into units that we don't see three to four people on their bellies, you know, all across the country? Yeah, so there are definitely some logistical challenges to this. I mean, even one as simple as actually flipping them over, the recommendations, uh, they want three to four people to flip them over, you know, so just finding those people, getting them all in the same place. Um, you have to be actually prone for like 16 hours a day, they found. So it's not just like, oh, you get to spend half an hour and you're good to go. Uh, you'll hear people say, oh, I don't know if we can feed. Do we need different sedation? They're concerned about pressure ulcers. Um, but at the same time, I, I, to me, 16 versus 32 in terms of a percentage mortality reduction, I feel like we should be taking on these. Uh, I would think of this as challenges, not barriers. Mm -hmm. And, and line placements as well, right? Depending yes. on, on where yeah. that is. And you know, I've been, um, I've been to two places. So, you know, the one at, uh, a previous health system that I worked at, they, we did not have any specialized beds or anything. So the, you know, the critical care team did all of the moving, you know, they say three to four. I think that's probably on the lower side. Whenever <laughs> I've ever done it, I mean, it is a all hands on deck. It's something like, it seems like six to eight patients wow. are, or uh, people are in the room there. And, you know, this was a French study. And I, I think depending on where you go in America, the people that you may be lifting from your back to your belly, right, may the, the, the demographics may be a little bit different here yeah. in America. Um, and so what, um, what another health system does is they have the rotaprone bed. And as far as oh, I yes. know, I don't think there's any other options available. But what you do is you it's this specialized bed where you hook the 
um, patients in and you have all of these um, like special padding to try to prevent pressure ulcers and things. And then it is a, it is a bed that actually does the flipping for you. Um, it's yeah. gotta be, I mean that it has to be expensive and that's probably why it's not everywhere, but potentially yep. a solution if you're, um, having problems kind of getting that implemented. Um, because it is a really, really important intervention. And I, I know I could speak for myself and you probably the same. I've seen it to where people are on the brink of death and you put them in prone positioning and within 12 hours, they're, you know, they're back to 40% people five and we're, you know, we're weaning them, you know, almost, you know, giving them yeah. a sedation trial and things. So it's, it is remarkable. Um, some of the changes that can happen. Yes. Now, another intervention that could kind of be made for just refractory hypoxia or other kind of respiratory issues like a respiratory acidosis would be the use of neuromuscular blockers to help achieve paralysis. Now, within ARDS, that evidence used to be much stronger. However, that kind of may have recently changed. So where do we stand now with neuromuscular blockade within ARDS? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, historically we had the Acuracis study or Acuracis. I always think I'm pronouncing it wrong, but they had a, they evaluated cisatricurium. It was a 48 hour uh, trial and they used volume control and it was a, they did a bolus and then a continuous infusion, no titration, no train of four monitoring. And when they did accrued mortality, they showed no difference. Um, but then they did an adjusted mortality for like the SOFA score and P to F, and they did see a statistically significant difference in mortality. And so you saw a lot more neuromuscular blockade. Uh, then the ROSE trial just came out this past year, and they basically, to the best of their ability, basically redid that study only in kind of modern times. And now what that means is that you have neuromuscular blockade and deep sedation versus no blockade and light sedation. And so, and they saw no difference in 90 day um, mortality. And so the question becomes now, should we be using it or not? Uh, I personally, I, I think the neuromuscular blockade is, is not something you should do for everyone. I definitely think you need to reserve it for the most severe. However, a couple of comments I have on the ROSE trial are that they excluded patients that were previously on neuromuscular blockers. And this was like 700 patients or something that they excluded that are potentially the patients that would benefit the most from this therapy. Um, they also enrolled patients um, in eight hours versus 16 hours in the Acuracis study. And so uh, in modern times, there's a new kind of phenotype of ARDS that they call rapidly improving ARDS. And so there's a possibility, and those patients seem to be very different than our classic ARDS, but they probably captured some of those in the ROSE trial. And I would agree, someone with rapidly improving ARDS does not need to be blocked. But if they were, I think that might have muddled the results a little bit. So uh, where are we? Uh, don't use it in everybody, but probably someone does benefit. And like previously receiving neuromuscular blockers could be you were, you got RSI in the ED and got paralyzed with something, correct? Or was it they received an infusion? I mean, I don't My think it really matters because um, I, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, but um, just more curious. Yeah. So my understanding was a lot of those patients were already on an infusion. And so basically what you're saying is that somebody prior to them getting enrolled in the row study thought they would benefit from 
uh, neuromuscular blockade. So one editorial I loved it said, this is likely not random, you know, that, that those <laughs> patients got it. And so, you know, the point is we probably took out the sickest patients that they're like, wow, this patient is so sick. We need to be very aggressive immediately starting blockade. And now we're not even looking at those patients. Um, and I think that that's really unfortunate that we, that we don't have more data on, on that group who probably would have benefited the most. I think I, I got a couple of follow-up questions, but we yeah. have to establish something here because I think before this Rose study came out, I think there were two clear sides of where people stood with neuromuscular blockade within ARDS. And if is, if Chris Drogi, is, a previous guest, is listening, we've talked about this before, and he, he was on the right side of this. But, you know, once oh, no. the, the, the one side of this was that, like, you you wanted to follow the results of the Acurisis study, right? You followed the study design, you used the larger fixed doses, um, cause yep. like the 37.5 milligrams, like when you, when you average that out, that is significantly higher than like our classic weight based cisetric serum that we would Correct. use. So that was kind of the one side. Now the other side was, okay, maybe they just benefit from paralysis. Let's go ahead and start like we normally do titrate to a train of four, maybe bis. We're not going to get into the, the monitoring Ooh. of it. Um, but where did you stand before the study came out? Were you on the larger dose or were you on the more conventional side? Uh, I was on the larger side. I the, was too. I was yeah. too. It was a hill I was going to die on. Like yeah, I, I, I fought, I fought hard for it. And then this study came out and I can't tell you how my intensivist colleagues gave me a very hard time because I always fought this, but you brought this up earlier. And it's a point I think we need to make is that we love getting the results of these studies, but then we don't apply them the same way that they did. Because <laughs> it's like, there's, there, there are small studies that says cisetricurium may like reduce the amount of interleukins and cytokines and Correct. things. So it's like, yes. maybe there was a benefit to that dose. So that's, that's where I stood. I couldn't believe when this came out that it showed that none of that really helped. And it really makes me question all of the other studies that I love and if that is going to maintain or not. The more we know about ARDS, the less we know is yes. is where this stands. But I'm glad that you were on that you were on my side, kind of the the literature side of things, regardless if it if it was positive or not. I like to think of myself as a purist. I don't think I'm always, but I do try to be a purist when I can. <laughs> okay. So I think there's a couple follow-up questions here. So yes. if you do if you decide to go down the paralysis route and you're using neuromuscular blockade, should you use cisatricurium? Because the pharmacist, you know, the, the value pharmacist comes here and saying, well, that's probably significantly more expensive than, than another agent. Is it just the, is it the, is it an agent specific effect or is it a class effect? So where do you stand on this? So I am a believer that it, I, I, my primary belief is that you should use the agent that was studied in the study. And so we know that cisatricurium works, and I do not know if something else works. I do think there is probably some type of class effect, but I am unwilling to say that without the data. But I also know that cisatricurium, you're right, does have mechanistic you know, it makes sense because of its other anti-inflammatory effects and stuff like that. And maybe that data is available for other neuromuscular blockers, but maybe that is another study. Is 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 there some other type of effect that's going on besides just ventilator synchrony? And and you know, cisetricurum it, it undergoes Hoffman elimination. It's a very straight. It's like a very different um, medication. So it makes sense that that might have effects that some of the other kind of classes of neuromuscular blockers might not have. Yes, but yes, I am definitely a believer, and I, uh, when I we created our neuromuscular blocker protocol at AU, we use cisetricurium. So, 
so again, I think this question would have been a little more um, uh, difficult to answer before this Rose study came out. But I think something that always came up now, I, I, I'll put myself out there and say I'm much more on the prone side of things now, but prone versus paralysis versus kind of doing both. I think that was before this study came out, that was a, a question or something that always came out, especially maybe in areas where logistically proning might be challenging. Again, I think the, the purest answer when you look at uh, the proning studies and the uh, neuromuscle blockade studies, usually they were on both in fairly high percentages. And so the question becomes, is it one, the other, or both that are mechanistically, is there a synergistic effect that's going on? Um, you know, I will say, unfortunately, I don't think the institutions I have worked at have maximized our ability to prone. So I have, you know, in practice done a lot more just neuromuscular blockade, but I do think that's really interesting. And well, you know, if we get to, to the ECMO studies, they'll talk about how the, in the EOLIA trial, like 90% of the patients had, you know, were proned and on neuromuscular blockers and stuff like that. And I think that's because that's what we're considering to be the optimal care for those patients. Now you stated that kind of the, the treatment goals of ARDS, it focuses around supportive care. And I think one of the studies that kind of embodies this supportive care kind of concept the most is that is the FACT study from 2006, kind of focusing on conservative fluid management in patients with ARDS. So I know our our previous guest, Andy Hawkins, is, is smiling, hopefully, as he's listening to this, talking about fluid stewardship here. But this, when you look into kind of the study algorithm, it's pretty in-depth. Um, <laughs> so my question for you is, how do you actually apply the findings of that fact study to your patients or just generally like just patients in general with ARDS? I definitely do not follow the fact protocol. Uh, <laughs> I, I do. I do admit that because uh, it, it is very complex. And even I have to go back and really follow the little flow chart to, to look at it. But the way that I look at it is to me, it kind of, you're turning on a dime, you know? And so the second that you're saying that patient is hemodynamically stable, you're perfusing effectively. I think you have to almost immediately say, can we start diuresing and can we get this patient, you know, at least fluid even or fluid down potentially depending on you know where you're at. So I unfortunately we do not have a protocolized method for use of this trial, but I I think it needs to be one of those questions where to me almost the second that I feel like we're not talking about hemodynamics, I want to be bringing up are we going to diurese this patient? And that's something to clarify here is like the 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 conservative fluid management is once they're out of that shock phase, like you yes. mentioned, like I know we probably have some cowboys who might, re right, might recommend otherwise, but generally speaking, if they're still on pressors, we're still talking about all those things, tough to recommend a diuretic in most cases, in, in yep. most cases here. Now, yes. go ahead. Yeah. I was say, you know, one of the classic to me pharmacy interventions is, you know, given that your patient's on pressors, you can still be looking at a patient with ARDS for how can you minimize fluids? You know, can you concentrate antibiotics, concentrate pressors? To me, that's an easy intervention for this patient of like, you know, maybe you're not going to actively give uh, a loop diuretic, but you can at least be mitigating the other stuff that you're giving. So yeah, shout out to fluid stewardship for sure. And then even antibiotic stewardship, right? Maybe getting rid yes. of those unnecessary antibiotics that gets gets rid of the liter of fluid for your vein or or whatnot there. 
Yeah. Um, so before the Rose trial came out, I, I would argue that probably the most controversial pharmacotherapy treatment option was the use of corticosteroids <sighs> for ARDS. I know <laughs> that sigh kind of says it all. So why is this such a controversy? Uh, to me, it's a controversy because you've got kind of this one investigator team that's done a majority of the positive studies. And when it was repeated by not that investigator team, you know, in the New England Journal, they found that there was no no difference. And then if you do it in late stage ARDS, you're actually harming the patient. And so then you can say, well, we'll look at the exact study and say that's when harm is, right? This, you know, this exact time point. But then as we were discussing, I already was hemming and hawing as what is early and late. So am I harming someone before that point? I just don't know. That to me makes me very nervous. Um, to me, steroids remind me of when uh, I got my husband a really nice drill, and he all of a sudden he's pulling out the drill for like hanging a picture on the wall, and it's because <laughs> it's like a cool toy and it kind of works, but at the same time it just seems wildly overkill for what's going on and maybe not even the right tool. And that's how I think about steroids in in ARDS. <laughs> that is the most perfect analogy. That's so great. I'm like almost crying over here laughing. That's, that's, that's so great. And the, the, I believe it's from Tennessee, but it's, it's Dr. Maduri, correct? Yes, yeah. Maduri, he's, the he's, Maduri protocol. And so it, you know, he is, and it, physiologically, it kind of makes sense a little bit, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, you mentioned it's this acute inflammatory early phase and what is corticosteroid, right? It is that yeah anti-inflammatory. So the, the, I, I understand kind of the concept there. Um, and I kind of agree with your opinion. Now, if you have a provider or a team that just insisted, right? I have an old provider used to say, no one, you didn't get a true shot if you passed away and didn't get doxy or steroids. So a little tough to argue there, but if it's to so say, you know, you're working with that provider and they just insisted, what regimen would you, would you use or, or recommend in these patients? So the last time that someone asked me this, I said, well, I, I don't recommend it. And they said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, as I said, I don't recommend it. Like you can do what you want, but I personally am not involved in this recommendation. And then they kind of pushed me. And so then I just joked with them. I said, what about hydrocortisone 50Q6? Because they were all so septic and we kind of laughed. So I, I like, I really would prefer not to. Do you have a favorite? You know, so that was a that was a research idea that I kind of wanted to do was to because a lot of times these patients are in septic shock and they'll be getting hydrocortisone. And so to right. see the effect of, you know, patients with septic shock and ARDS, the effect of I was going to do like um, length on the ventilator per se, not necessarily mortality, but compare sure. those two, because that's generally what I see. I, we I don't I've never I've never recommended the corticosteroids for ARDS, but sometimes you'll naturally see some of those mineralocorticoids because they're, they have concomitant shock with them. But I think the Maduri right. study did, did I, th I think it was a weight base, like one to two mg per kg of, of solumedrol. Yep. And then it's, I mean, it was a long wean. I mean, that's like a 28 to 35 day yes. kind of taper there. So it's, I mean, in terms of like steroid stewardship, it is, it's not great there. <laughs> no, no, definitely not great. Yeah. So yeah, I think that the whole team laughed at me and I think we ended up doing hydrocortisone and I was like, okay, this is, I can keep moving, I suppose. Literally like wiping your hands away like as they're as they're talking to you like I'm I'm wiping my hands of this I did not want this <laughs> yes yes so many drugs or, or kind of interventions have been researched and kind of eventually failed for the treatment or management of ARDS. Some of them may initially have had like a positive, maybe a retrospective or a small study, and then eventually you get bigger and the results weren't so promising. 
So I mentioned we're recording this in December. So we'll kind of maybe refer to these as like the ghosts of, of ARDS past, right? So yeah. what are some therapies that we've maybe tried but didn't go as well as we maybe hoped? Yeah. So there's a lot, you know, and we've got uh, steroids, we've got albuterol, we've got statins, we've got prostaglandins, we've got uh, uh, surfactant. Uh, those are just the ones that are coming off the top of my head right now. And a lot of them did not show a, a difference. And so, but one of the things I kind of want to go back to real quick is like even the fact trial. And we're just like, we almost skipped over the fact trial. We're like, yeah, of course we're going to do fluid stewardship. Of course this makes sense. You know, not only was it in ARDS, but it's in everywhere else. But they actually didn't see a statistically significant mortality difference. But then you look at what they wanted, and they wanted this like enormous mortality difference, like 10% or something was how they powered their study. But when you really look at it, it was like a 3% mortality difference, and they said it wasn't significant. But I, I'm just going to put out there that for me, a well-timed Lasix dose providing a mortality benefit of 3%, I'm interested in. And so, uh, you know, it turns out with a lot of these ghosts of Christmas past, I'm definitely curious about when we look at how are we powering these critical care studies? Is, is a 10% mortality difference reasonable for a statin? No. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, and so there's actually some really interesting work uh, coming out. Uh, it's like Calfi and colleagues, and they actually did some phenotyping of ARDS and then reevaluated the, some of the statin studies and actually did find a mortality benefit in patients that had more of an inflammatory phenotype, which I think is very interesting and very hypothesis generating for how we should be evaluating ARDS as a whole. So do you have kind of like a contrarian opinion to statins in, RD, in ARDS? Is that where you're kind of leading us towards here right now? Um, I certainly am not going to stop your statin if you are have ARDS and you have a statin on board. And um, you know, I to me the the problem right now is I don't have a great way of in my unit to assess the inflammatory phenotype for ARDS. But in terms of reevaluating some of these studies and maybe pulling out that rapidly improving group that seems to do fine if you just do good mechanical ventilation, they just get better. I don't think we should be studying them for statin therapy. But I think. Yeah, I think there's probably a group that does benefit. So yeah, I suppose I have a contrarian opinion. I'm not putting it on everybody right now, but if you told me there was another statin trial happening, I would very happily read it. Is it is one of those where you don't discontinue it, but if, if you see it on a home med list, are you asking to get it put back? That's kind of, you're not, you're, you're not getting new starts per se, but like if, if yes. someone had a previous indication, you're popping that guy back on. Or you're oh, trying yeah. to. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm a deep believer in statins and uh, statin withdrawal is a thing. And the fact that if you have statin withdrawal in the unit, you can uh, you can see adverse effects and stuff. So yes, I will definitely restart it. <laughs> now, so are there, um, we've kind of tried all of these. And and, and then the things you mentioned with these, with, with kind of the, the ghosts of ARDS past is like a lot of them initially had small things that were positive, right? Like that initial yep. statin study actually was positive, um, you know, kind of switching yep. gears from, you know, meds to ventilator modes, but like the oscillator, the the HFOV, that first study was extremely positive. And then the, the previous ones were not only, they, they, did, they were not positive and then they became negative. So, yes. um, so it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you're saying, you know, that, uh, we're kind of hitting the tip of the iceberg. And just when you think, you know, something, it, it cuts away 70% of the knowledge that we thought we knew. Right. 
So right. we've, yeah. so we've kind of tried all of these therapies, right? We've we've prone them, maybe we've paralyzed them. We're we've got them out of the shock phase. We're doing conservative fluid management, and now, you know, we're doing low tidal volume, all the ventilator support. We're trying everything, and they're just still not improving. So, I think really we kind of have one chance left here, and that's kind of ECMO. So, you know, right now, and I think this is probably the, the aspect of this that's got the, that's probably progressed or changed the most with this, but what is the role for, of ECMO for kind of severe ARDS? <laughs> that is, that is the million dollar question. So there was the CSER trial that came out and it showed no difference, but a lot of people had problems with this study because it was a very, um, uh, heterogeneous ventilation strategies that were used. And then they would randomize patients to receive ECMO and they would go to an ECMO center and then they never actually got ECMO. Um, and so there were some issues with this study. And so the Eolia um, trial came out uh, in New England Journal earlier this year. And once again, unfortunately, did not see a difference in mortality. But um, there's a couple of interesting kind of caveats to this. So one of the things that happened was that they did um, JAMA came out in JAMA was what they called a Bayesian analysis. And so Bayesian analysis is the statistical methodology using what they call prior probability distributions. But essentially, it uses uh, prior data to decide what is the percent chance of a benefit. So it'll say something like there's a 50% chance of a 4% reduction. And they are, are you willing to roll that dice? And so the Bayesian analysis actually did show some benefit for ECMO. Um, and then you can get into, that's an interesting rabbit hole with the many editorials. And so there's uh, one person that, uh, how did they describe it? They basically said, well, using a Bayesian analysis is basically just me using my own opinion anyway. So why would I bother to do this analysis? Um, but I think probably one of the most interesting things about the Eolia study was that the patients in the in the control group were treated with probably the highest standard of care in terms of what ARDS management is. They had low tidal volume ventilation. They were prone. They were on neuromuscular blockade. They were had very specific protocols. And so I think you can maybe rest in comfort that if you're doing everything right by a patient, maybe you don't need ECMO, but at the same time, if, you don't, if you're not doing some of those things, maybe ECMO is the right answer. There's also, um, there was some crossover in the Eolia study. And so um, when you looked at the patients, there were like 35 patients that crossed over from the, you know, the non-ECMO to the ECMO category and 15 of those, they survived. And so someone said, well, the, the crossover you know, was used, you actually would see a significant difference, you know, with ECMO. So, you know, what is the role? I think ECMO in a healthy, a previously healthy patient, you know, so like, I still remember my 25 year old college kid with the flu and oh, ARDS. It's the flu always, isn't it? Yeah. It's just awful. Right. You know, and they put him on ECMO and he was going to die and he put him on ECMO and he looks, I mean, he lived, he walked out of the unit. And I think for that kind of patient, there's a benefit. But I think when you start looking at older patients, a lot of comorbidities, I, it's hard for me to make that argument or harder, I should say. And I think too, there's just so much variability that goes into ECMO, like yes. the having a, like having a positive ECMO trial and then, you know 
taking that and implementing that in, you know, across the country is probably just really, really challenging compared to like a lot of these other things can definitely um, be challenging, but maybe not as complex as something where you're literally bypassing, you know, one of the holy trilogy of of the of the organs, um, right. the lungs there. So um, but I, you know, I ask that because, you know, I know there are centers who um they have such a well-tuned ECMO machine that they might bypass a lot of that other stuff. And if someone is severe right. ARDS, they might hook them up on VV ECMO right there and not even try to prone or paralyze them. Whereas, you know, I think in most cases, you're going through the other stepwise approach. And then if Correct. those fail, then you're going to ECMO. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in your opinion, what would you say are kind of some of the biggest research areas um, in regards to the management of ARDS? Or maybe not areas, but maybe like are there are there a few key studies or things that we should be should be keeping our eye out for? Um, you know, I mean, I think, the, the, you know, the holy grail of ARDS research certainly remains identifying a disease modifying drug, you know, and finding something that would truly alter that disease course. And I think there's some stuff looking at gene therapy right now is pretty interesting. Um, you know, I, I think the most feasible and interesting research that's coming out is really evaluating response by different phenotypes and different endotypes and the use of biomarkers to kind of be able to differentiate those. Because I think that we have some therapies therapies that really do work. And we're just not always 100% sure of who to implement those in. So to me, I think that's the stuff that gets me the most excited when I you know, see my e-table of contents comes through. When I see something about that, that's definitely what I'm, what I'm picking up to read more about. So what you're saying is that, and I'll, you know, I'll just, we're in the trust tree here. We've established that already. <laughs> so I need to stop skipping over the pharmacogenetic sections in the table of contents is what you're telling me because hand up, I do do that. <laughs> I do. But you're saying for ARDS, I definitely need to hold, pause and, and be perusing those. I can do that. Yes, I, I will admit that if I see one more pharmacogenomic study about warfarin, uh, that is something I also skip over pretty quickly. Um, but for ARDS, I am very intrigued as to what's coming out right now. So we've hit on tons of such, such great stuff here, but a lot of it didn't really talk about meds like we, you know, very, you know, very much at all. So what would yeah. you say is kind of the role of the pharmacist with regards to ARDS management, you know, without having, you know, a lot of say key medications that are those kind of disease modifying agents that you said, you know, what can we do? Um, you know, so to me, ARDS patients benefit from high quality critical care management. So, you know, when you're thinking about what is a critical care pharmacist doing, you know, you're hoping they're doing fast hugs BID, you know, you're hoping they're doing antibiotic de-escalation and fluid stewardship and all those types of things. I think there are some fun you know, particulars to ARDS, you know, one is again, that more aggressive fluid management. I think that's a good thing. Uh, pull out a calculator, check the title volume yourself. I know one time I did and they asked me and I said, Hey, this is kind of high. What's going on? And like, Oh, we just can't get them to do anything else. And I was like, well, let's play with their sedation. And so, you know, of course we all are very good at uh, pain, agitation, delirium, you know, we can manage that. And so we came up with some good tricks and then they could be on low title volume ventilation. Uh, one of my favorites is that, you know, we allow, what they call permissive hypercapnia when they when we ventilate them, which means that basically we know that they're going to have a little bit of elevated CO2 because of our ventilation strategy. You don't need to freak out. It's not a big deal. Occasionally, some residents like, we should do some Diamox. And I say, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're good. We don't need that. Um, yeah, I think understanding the ventilator modes with regards to neuromuscular blockade is very helpful. But then just, you know, just 
do what pharmacists do best, which is manage the meds. And I think when you do that and you provide that high quality interventions, that is going to benefit an ARDS patient the most right now. Be a medication expert. That's what we're there for. You're exactly right. Well, I'll tell you what, this may have been the most fun that I've ever had having an ARDS topic discussion or any (laughs) type of discussion on it. This was absolutely fantastic. Andrew, I appreciate not only for your time and knowledge that you just passed along, but I think some of us may remember I'm also a quote guy. So I love sharing those, you know, almost just as much. Good. <laughs> now, where can the listeners find you? Are you active on any type of social medias or anything? Yes, I am active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Andrea Sakura. So please feel free to follow me. I try to put up some good book reviews and what other, other random things I think are interesting for the day. Yes. And then we'll, there will definitely be more to come on the book club. This is the first announcement. So very, very excited for more of the pharmacy to read information coming. Um, So Andrea, thank you. Thank you. Another huge thanks to Andrea Sikora Newsom for taking the time to join us today. And definitely also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners because this podcast does not exist without you. So please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, that's T-O to dose, or via email at pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And if, you know, this is feedback, not only for, you know, the episode and topics and things, but also on the book club. So if you're excited or if you have ideas for books or things, please send it, send info to us, you know, uh, give us some uh, a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. We'll be really excited there. So on our website, you know, pharmacytodose.com, you'll find the show notes that include background reading, guidelines, some articles that Andrea referenced in this discussion, and much, much more. And honestly, I would genuinely love to hear from each and every one of you. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.